thanks for joining. Uh, we're going to get started here. I'm Judd Mackerel. Excited for you to spend time with us. And, and we want to make sure this is a really valuable, fruitful time uh, for everybody that's joining us to just get more insight, hear, hear from our experts today, and hopefully help apply this to growing your business, especially as you look to the new year. So topic today is navigating alternatives uh, as a strategy for growth. Today with me, I've got two guests, uh, Victoria Bills, who's the Chief Investment Strategist at Bannery and Capital, and Steve Zushin, who is the CRO or Chief Revenue Officer in Mammoth. So I'm your host, Judd, with MileMarker, also a partner in the Mammoth business. So uh, excited about all things alternatives and how it's helping firms shape their future. So we're going to hop into it. We have a very simple agenda, housekeeping, which we're doing right now. I'm going to intro you guys, which I already did. I'm moving quickly through this. And then we're going to answer the questions that you all submitted to us, which were really excellent. We have, I think, 25, 26 questions. Um, so we're going to run through those together and uh, we'll wrap up from there. Victoria or Steve, anything that we should uh, talk about really quick before we get started? What does what Banrian do, do real quick? I think that might be helpful. Sure thing. So Banrian, we are a access platform for RIAs to diversify into alternative investment solutions on behalf of their clients. So we focus on providing not only liquid, but illiquid alternatives for RIAs to be able to continue access into the alternative space. We also try to address a lot of some of the core issues that make alternatives so inaccessible to RIAs, such as continuous education, due diligence, we offer OCIO services, and most importantly, we basically serve as an ally to the financial advisor, whereas in some cases for some access platforms, the RIA is the product that they're trying to sell. Steve, how about you? Awesome. So Mammoth, we're a technology company focused on streamlining the alternatives process for RAs. So there are a lot of moving parts um, within, you know, if we use alternatives as a very broad asset class and um, really about how can an RAA adopt a new platform to systematize, operationalize their process for allocating to alternatives. And we're forming a lot of partnerships and, and Banrian is one that we're really excited about. So glad to be here today. I have your bios here. Uh, so here's <laughs> here's your here's your uh, backgrounds. <laughs> Forgot I had this slide. Um, and uh, here's Steve. Uh, hey. hey, there we go. Oh. There's me. So, all right, let's let's go through this five topics. Getting started, operational considerations, tailoring your alts for clients, evaluating your alternative investments, and we'll talk about Mammoth's uh, solution here at the end. Uh, so first question today is, what is the best way for an advisor to get started using alts? So best way, I honestly think, is to just get started. I know alternatives are a very broad space by which there are kind of five key components when we think about them. So whether that's like private equity, commodities, going into more structured products, there's many ways that you can kind of tackle the alternative space. But when we think about some of the more easier ways or more easier accessible ways to gain access to alternatives, like going into the route of researching, for example, like venture capital, private equity, those are kind of, I would say, the more easier ones to kind of get a hold of in terms of how lockup periods work, how the investment period works. And of course, there's also, for example, for more, much more easier access, liquid alternatives that can also be used. You know, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on all the different types of alts, but I'll, I'll just add to that, that really when I think of the advisory business, it's really about taking a step back and look, taking a, 
or zooming out and looking at your client base and the type of persona and what's a, what might be appropriate based on the clients that you serve. Um, Cause it is such a wide asset class. There's so many parts to it that, you know, quite frankly, you might have a client that's very interested in venture, but it's not appropriate for them. Or you might have clients that really do need an allocation to some private alternatives and uh, getting into those markets and really understanding the nuances. So I would, t- I would start by zooming out and kind of taking stock of the clients you have and not just the clients that you currently have, but where do you want to go? What types of deals are they doing and how can you start to get access to those deals and really think from a team perspective, how can I start offering these and making it available for the types of clients I want to grow into? So that's that's where I would start or add to Victoria's answer. Great. The only thing I would add to this is making sure you map out the critical path to serving on the alts mm. and understand the full life cycle that you're going to be dealing with if you haven't done it prior. Call some friends that do alts, get aware. Obviously, uh, Victoria and Steve are great resources for that as well. All right. Next question. How do advisors know if alternative investments are right for their client? Kind of complimentary to that prior. So for the most part, and I think like Steve kind of tapped on this a lot, where it, alternatives are very much because of the nature of them, they can be very highly complex. And so understanding your customer and understanding kind of not just their timeline, access to capital. Are they like comfortable with long lockups or short lockups? And by lockups, what we mean is like if you're going to commit $500,000 to like, for example, a VC fund over the course of like five years, those capital calls are going to come in in increments. And so you have to make certain that you have that liquidity available or you're going to be in trouble. And, you know, understanding like what your clients' needs are as well, I think is very important. So, for example, if you have a long-term horizon and you want a very growthy strategy, going into like a private equity fund may be a good resource for you. If you're looking for something that's more stable, or if you have a client that, for example, is just looking for kind of like small, like decent small cash flow over time, you could go into REITs or go into a real estate fund because pieces of equity that come in from that. So it's really about understanding like what your clients, not just tolerance for risk is, but also understanding their comfortability with long-term time horizons of long-term lockup investment horizons and whether they actually do have the capital available in order to invest into these alternatives over the long term. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because like we were talking about before, there are some different variables that you have to consider when it comes to alternatives. I think um, the lockup periods is good when those capital calls are going to come in. And also the tax considerations of privates are going to change the landscape for your clients if they're not already allocated to them. So considering how this how this will impact taxes for your clients, how the ownership of these alts should take place. So how are you going to invest ultimately, right? Is your client going to invest directly or are we going to gain? Are we going to allocate through a trust? Those can be those can be some nuances there. And then also this idea of liquidity. I know it comes up a lot when we talk about alternatives. Sometimes as a as a con, but ultimately a lot of a lot of money that we're allocating today is already illiquid. And I was actually in a panel and I was listening to someone from BlackRock talk, and they were talking about the alternative space with liquidity. And they were saying, "Well, when are you going to get into working with retirement money?" <laughs> right. So when we talk about IRAs and retirement savings, that money is already illiquid. It's not accessible without massive penalties before someone's retirement age. So when we talk about liquidity, understanding the nature and the allocation as part of the overall strategy for our client is important too. So sometimes just thinking a little bit, zooming out and thinking a little bit outside of the box can help us with that. 
Yeah. And adding on to that, like Shana passed along um, some information from the Tiburon Summit that there's going to be a large transfer of wealth close to about $72 trillion that's coming in from Gen X to millennials in the next, in the upcoming like 20 to 30 years. And so these are people who may have accessible cash that's outside of retirement. And mm. again, that risk profile that they may be willing to kind of go into an alternative a little bit earlier. And we're also seeing like with millennials in particular that we tend to have like a higher risk, higher risk tolerance for our desire to be in altcoins, Bitcoin, NFTs. I, I, again, things I'm not mm. advocating for, but I'm just saying that, you know, there's a certain subsection of people in my age bracket that love these things. And I don't quite sometimes understand why, but, you know, we encourage people to do what they think is best for them. So, <laughs> That's well, and advisors question. need to have an answer for all these things because uh, exactly. clients are curious and curiosity is good, uh, but we need to be able to appropriately steer people in a direction that's clear and empathetic and, and effective to their to their risk profile too, right? You know, it's funny also just because as you talk about our risk profile and our willingness to explore these products that might have previously been viewed as, you know, on the fringe previous company I was with, we had a stock screener as part of our software and we would track missing ticker symbols that were put in. Or when people would search and come up no results, we would track those. It was uncanny how many privately owned companies people were looking for ticker symbols on that just aren't publicly traded companies. And I think more and more our generation, uh, millennials and Gen Xs, become familiar with these massive, large brands if you're not a financial advisor, if you don't live in this world, you don't understand that they're not publicly traded and that they're not included in these big indexes that make headlines every day. So I think more and more as a culture, these large unicorn brands that become name brands within our households are making up more and more of our economy. And so allocating to private investments, whether we think from there or all the way down to you know, private credit or venture capital or whatever these subclasses we want to talk about is becoming more and more available and not quite as scary. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can, I'll, I'll keep moving to the questions. I was talking to Aaron Dillon this morning because uh, he helps advisors invest in secondaries. So many people want to be able to have a little slice of SpaceX or, or something mm. like that that's not yet on the, on the public market. And it's a real preferential sort of thing for advisor clients to be able to get access to their advisor. Simple. All right. How should advisors be positioning alternative investments to their clients? This one, I think is, you know, let's go quick on this one, but I think it's ultimately just based on their understanding of the client and understanding of the broader availability that exists. Go ahead, Victoria. Oh, exactly. And I think one of the other things that we try to do at Banrian when we are talking about the positioning of alternatives, we have, of course, we have like our more like traditional alternatives. So whether that's um, venture capital, private equity or private debt, but we also try to position certain pieces of the alternatives world in the form of either ego or impact. So when we talk about, for example, ego-based plays, it may not necessarily have to do with performance, but it's something that is impactful to the end customer. For example, a sports rights fund that allows you to own a certain percentage of the bulls, RIP for that, or um, like the Bear, Bears, for example, or even like the Celtics, different types of sports teams. So a sports rights fund, which can resonate very well with your client because that's something that they can go on the golf course or they're out with friends and they say, I own a piece of the Celtics or I own a piece of, piece of this team. 
wine funds are also a um, level of ego play because you get to have certain um, certain vintages and work with certain vineyards and you get a case of wine at the end of the year that is of that vineyard or of similar vin- vineyards within that area. So these are certain ways that you can position alternatives without necessarily talking about performance. And then when we get into the impact play, for example, talking about opportunity opportunity zone funds. So these are funds that focus on investing in impoverished areas across the United States. The Or um, if we wanted to talk about, for example, a VC fund that focuses on minority-owned companies in the Midwest, or even like there's a like debt fund that focuses on minority owned or like businesses that are impacted or in, or focused within like certain regions of the United States. These are ways that you can position alternatives to your client without necessarily having to go into the discussion of performance. Because when we talk about again, like it doesn't like it may not necessarily matter that your wine fund is returning out like a three percent IRR. It's the fact that you get wine at the end of the year that makes the client very happy. So these are also things that you can consider about consider when positioning alternatives to your client outside of the top discussion of performance. I love that. I love the simplicity of the ego and and impact. I feel like more and more as this becomes more accessible, really one of the truest forms of impact investing can happen through alternatives and in the private market. I actually, on our podcast, Alternative Universe, I interview uh, Matt Dunbar of Venture South. That interview will be coming out in a couple of weeks. Venture South is a regionally focused angel investing network. And um, the thing that I love about that is it was it was founded truly based on impact and making taking your capital that you have to deploy and making investments in your region and in local businesses. They started a, an accelerator and this angel group and I think it's a very cool way to start to contribute back. But again, if I zoom out a little bit and I think from an advisor's perspective, one thing that I want to pay attention to when I look across the technology I use and how I communicate with my clients today about their overall wealth is alternatives have to be part of it. And far too often we speak with advisors today and it's treated separately. So when alternatives are part of an allocation, it's like, well, here's your overall, here's your financial plan. And then over here, we have these alternative investments because we don't really quite know how they fit in. And to your point, Victoria, maybe you're getting wine out of that. So let's not include it in your overall net worth or how we talk about financial planning or how we look at your household on an annual basis. And I think it needs to start becoming part of it. So when we look at our proposals, when we think of our overall asset allocation, alternatives should be included in that conversation every time. All right. Biggest challenges. What are the biggest challenges most advisors face when starting to use alts? I'll I'll start with this. I think it's just so fragmented, you know, Um, it's such a fragmented market and um, advisors struggle because it creates, it introduces a lot of operational challenges. I get the hint, I get this feeling when I talk to advisors more and more, if we think back to the stock jockey days where mutual funds were coming out of the market, these packaged products, and it's like, ah, I'm really only interested in doing the stuff for my clients that, that has trades. Why would I introduce a fund that's going to remove that that thing that I contribute? And I see more and more alternatives when advisors think about them, all they see is the challenges. And so it's just, nope, I, it's too challenging. It's too hard for me to scale. I'm just going to leave it over here. That's not part of my job. And so rather than coming up with the reasons not to do it, I think more and more we need to look at more of the reasons to do it. 
And, you know, ultimately that's my mammoth exists is to try and reduce some of those challenges and to make alternatives easier for you to approach, but also easier for you to um, provide excellent service to your clients um, when they do allocate to these different types of products on the private market and bring it all into to part of your household level approach. Yeah, absolutely. And like some of the challenges that I've been hearing, like working with financial advisors is exactly that, that it's the market is too segmented. It's um, incredibly difficult. And there's so many different platforms, for example, or if again, we're talking about like um, VC funds, there are thousands of VC funds, and they all kind of use different platforms for collecting capital calls. And so you basically like the way that you find out about a fund is either you're an institution or you're someone who's heard about it and you decide to invest directly. What we are trying to do with Bannerian and also with our collaboration with Mammoth Technology is to try and create a more democratized universe by which you can easily access a marketplace for alternative investments. The due diligence is essentially done for you on our behalf. Mm -hmm. And you can also see, for example, from a risk standpoint, using our analytics tools, how you can basically fit or slot the alternative into the portfolio. And we also allow for comparative analysis as well. And you can even use that across public and private market data. So if you're really trying to, for example, if you're, we're talking about the excuse of like, it's just really hard to access. I think that again, marketplaces or access platforms such as ourselves are very easy to kind of navigate. And even with the cause of like some of the other challenges that people talk about, so expenses and fees, or um, just identifying the right opportunity. In terms of just identification of the opportunity, I think that what we're trying to do is to create that marketplace where there is a diversified scope of options for mm -hmm. financial advisors to choose from. That way, it's not necessarily you go onto a platform and, oh, there's only one VC fund, when we know that there's at least 10 or 15 in this universe that are actively fundraising at this time. So I think that what we're trying to do is to create a opportunity where alternatives can be grown and used at scale. I love that. And and I'll just add a little bit to it. But um, this idea of bringing things together and creating a diversified menu of options, right, to to allocate money to, I feel like the reason why something isn't there, if that's based on because it didn't get through due diligence, whatever those reasons are, it should be founded in in that type of fact. Like, I love the idea that, oh, it it didn't pass our due diligence. That's why it's not available rather mm -hmm. than it's not on the platform that I use to access. Mm -hmm. So sorry, it's off the menu. Yeah, I, I think this idea of being able to collaborate and aggregate offerings, regardless of the platform that they're on is important and be able to run them through streamlined operations that work for us, whether that's if I, if I'm an advisor and I go find um, a fund that I'd like to offer, do I have access to a due diligence partner? Right. Mm -hmm. Can I run this through and, and, be confident in the due diligence that before I make it available to my clients. For a lot of independents, those types of relationships aren't available. And I think that that's something that's awesome that we're working on is trying to make that more, not just democratized, but available and accessible and scalable. I was just going to chime in a little bit more on that point, because again, like with other like forms of like access platforms, like they claim, for example, that they might be doing due diligence, but it's very much based off of fees or like they get paid to have those funds on their platform. Whereas at least mm. for Bannery, at least for Bannery, we don't get paid for our due diligence. We don't get paid to put products on our platform or we don't get paid if you invest. We get paid for the fact that we continue to basically work as a partner and advocate 
for the funds that are on our platform, but most importantly, keeping the financial advisor in mind. We don't make money as a third-party marketer and we don't make money basically for, hey, if we can convince you to put a million dollars into this fund, like we, I get a commission check. That's not being a good partner to a financial advisor if I'm sitting there trying to push products to you that I may, you don't know necessarily may work for your client. What mm-hmm. I want to do is I want to be able to provide that accessibility and also that scalability to for you to be able to access that for your clients. So yeah. that's where I think that is the key differentiator for us. I think that's excellent. And and I think the the world that Banrian and Mammoth create together, you're helping advisors kind of in a way, position themselves like a general partner in their venture fund that represents their clients where they have a mandate, just like a VC would, that my mandate is that I need to allocate capital to this sort of investment on the behalf of the Smith family or the Rogers family or et cetera. By having access and insight and diligence, you're now in position to have that posture and not then worry about the administrative burden either but simply doing this as the right thing as the the representative of that family or those clients or that group of clients or plan. It's great. So let's talk shifting gears into operational considerations. What's the best structure for subdoc or what the best structure for a subdoc process is the question someone someone submitted. So what would we say to that? (laughs) I was joking about this. I think the best structure for a subdoc is no subdoc. <laughs> but where we're at and uh, you know, really where we've focused at Mammoth is these need to be digitized and they need to be um, standardized. And unfortunately for the stage of the market that we find ourselves in, there's no regulation that enforces that. And so the way that we've approached this is for our clients, specifically on the advisory side, is that we will digitize the subscription documents of the asset managers and the deals that you want to work with and normalize that under your brand. So the client experience that they go through when completing a subscription document should be through a relationship with you as the advisor um, and not you handing that relationship over to a fund manager. And we feel like that's a, a big service that we bring to the industry is allowing you to remain at the center of those transactions because ultimately that's what we're doing when we're filling out these paperworks and the subscription documents. Um, so I believe in in not just digitizing it, but also creating a scalable process there. So one of the things that we focus on at Mammoth is um, working with your other technology that you run your business on. Once we can build out and have an investor profile, we can greatly reduce the time it takes to complete subscription documents, rendering it just down to signature. And for some of our partners, they have signature rights. So the client never needs to see a subscription document later. Um, So there's a lot of different processes here, but I think we need to start with advisors thinking, how can I own this relationship and how can I sit at the center of this transaction? And I think that starts by you taking control of the subscription document process. Yeah, I genuinely don't have much to add about it, Um, especially when it comes to like from our perspective at Banrian and also just when I think about like my previous roles that I played, like at the Illinois State Treasurer's Office, like we had, for example, when it came to sub- subscription documentation, we were very particular about certain things that we wanted on the subdogs. So most favorite nations, things like that, and or having a seat at the table in terms of like a um, like private board seat. So there were just a lot of things that like when you're talking about like from a financial advisory standpoint, those are unless you are 
contributing a lot of money. It's difficult to kind of make those argu- make arguments for those. But I think overall, like process for subscription documentation, subscri- subscription docs is just, again, like digitization is very important, being able to go through and keep those house those in different places, especially if you're go- like investing in multiple alternative products within a year. Absolutely. I mean, Judd, you have you have some experience with this just on on both sides of it, right? So not mm-hmm. just what how we've approached this at Mammoth, but going through a not so well tailored sub doc process is painful. Yeah, for sure. And it's confusing. And it's if you have the intent to do the deal, you get so into it and then you realize the downstream effects of that from your own personal accounting and tax and all that kind of stuff. It's a lot to it. Um, so as much as we can make it efficient and clear. Uh, with technology, it's it really changes the game uh, here. Mm-hmm. Next question is: What factors are considered in building an alt allocation? So, as Victoria, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you focus on that as our lead off. Of course. So, and I think we've kind of chimed on this a little bit throughout the call. So, liquidity needs, liquidity constraints, target portfolio sizing or percentages. I think overall. I, we've talked about this, or like a lot of people have discussed this before, that the um, 60-40 portfolio is dead. In general, the way that we kind of think about allocation to alternatives is that we like to provide essentially about 10 to 20%, depending again on the client's need and risk tolerance, the risk profile. For our liquid alt portfolio that we provide through Banry, and that step, we kind of allow for, again, a like 10, 20, up to 30% allocation, depending again on risk tolerance and making certain that, again, it works for the client. But of course, if you're trying to go outside of the liquid alts and maybe you want to go like private equity, venture capital, it's always important to kind of think about that uh, risk profile and also just kind of like return on investment over time. On average, like a VC, like early stage VC fund, you can look at about like a um, two to three, three times return on your investment. And so with that being said, but that's a two to three X performance potentially off of 10, 12 years of an investment timeline. So understanding, again, your client's risk profile, but also maybe sometimes that funds are not going to necessarily perform as well as you think that they are. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. So when building out those like allocations to alts, those are kind of, those are the things that we think about. And those are the things that we try to advocate for people to consider. Great. So a couple of questions here. How do advisors build a client experience? That's a big question. Um, and then two is reporting the returns is one thing, but in mass, correctness, the spelling on that, but how, how do you report on the story of the investment? So really one question here is what does it look like to properly communicate a private investment inspired story to a client? I mean, that, that's honestly most of my day-to-day job whenever I'm doing due diligence reports is understanding from end to end, like the story of the fund, the story of the investment. So when I think about like the key qualities of a fund, or when I think about the key kind of ways to build a client experience, a, a client experience, first off, like who's the fund, what do they do? So, and by what do they do? Like, is it a REIT strategy? Is it a second venture secondaries fund? Is it a diamond fund? How do they invest? And so I think that that's the how is also the unique value proposition that they bring to the table. So I think about, for example, we work with a private debt fund on our platform that 
Essentially, the managing partner has over 25 years of working within the private debt, private credit space, and also has a partner, has two partners that are within a bank that essentially help to evaluate the um, basically small, mid-sized businesses that they're working with and basically providing lower middle market debt for those businesses with a focus on the companies that are basically not in the Midwest, but in the Pacific Northwest. So these are very mom and pop shops that essentially may not necessarily qualified for banking debt, or they may not necessarily qualify for a um, private equity or venture capital, but they're right in that sweet spot where they might have about a million in EBITDA. And so these are companies that are extremely viable, but maybe just need that extra additional liquidity shot in order to get to the next stage of their business. So when I'm talking about, for example, pitching the Meriwether Group like Hero Fund, I'm very much talking about not just the fund manager, but also about how it's so unique compared to other funds that might be in that same area or other funds that might also be doing private credit at the same time. I like that. And I, I like the idea when just telling the story of these investments, it's really what we're talking about is vehicles to deploy capital. These different managers and vehicles have different mandates and being familiar with, well, what is the route? How are they? What's the decision process that they go through to deploy this capital? Ultimately, when I'm communicating that back to the client, how is your investment being used? And I think that that gets into, um, you know, this idea of impact investing and really understanding what is the impact that I'm making? How is this capital being deployed? What are the due diligence guidelines? Is the manager meeting their mandate, but also how is that beyond returns? How is that being received? I think that that's important. And when we talk about how do advisors build a client experience, I really want to turn that around to Judd, but ultimately I think it starts with having information available so that it's easy for you when it comes time to sit down with a client and review the investments that they have, that you're up to date on what they own. And you know, when it comes to all investments, but when it comes to the private stuff, sometimes that information is harder to come by. So having a platform where you can access that information, be prepared for the meeting is important. Yeah, yeah. that's great. I mean, if, as an advisor, if you don't know where all your clients' assets are, uh, even the things, especially the things you aren't managing, uh, you really need to be able to start representing that because that's how you drive value and help think comprehensively across all the decisions. I mean, obviously, if they want you to be isolated to a specific part, okay, that's great. But generally, you know, the best relationships are where you can like really look across the field and understand, you know, how to do that. And your technology should represent that as best as possible because you need to scale that, right? What are advisors doing to satisfy due diligence when they don't claim to be experts in underwriting one fund from the next? You need to outsource it and you need to hire a trusted partner. So you need to work with somebody who can run these opportunities and these funds through a diligence process that you agree on um, that works for you and your clients. So it's it's not okay just to not do it, right? So if you're not comfortable and you don't want to build out that team, an outsourced partner is going to be the next best thing. and Or maybe even the best thing. I'll let Victoria add on to that. Yeah. I mean, I love kind of deep diving into funds. It's one of those things where even when I'm not necessarily a subject matter expert on like every single alternative in the entire universe, I love just kind of going through and researching not just the historical performance of funds that are in that category, but also understanding kind of the value proposition for the managers themselves. 
So, and every fund is unique in many ways. Like it's very rare that I run into a fund that I'm just like, oh, it's exactly like this, or this fund is exactly like this fund, even if they're like competing, even if they're competing in the same categories, like there are plenty of venture funds that are completely holistically unique and differentiated from each other. Some may invest in like B2B SaaS and some are focused on consumer. They may have a very similar return profile, but they are essentially focused on different segments of investing in small mids in smaller mid-sized companies. And for example, with the case of like Meriwether Group, private credit fund that focuses on Pacific Northwest. There are other private credit funds that I know of that are universal, focusing on Japan, or they may focus on investments all across the United States. So when it comes to like having a partner that, for example, is willing to do that deep dive research and being able to kind of present competently on the funds and investments that you need in order to satisfy your clients' needs, that's very key. It's something that you can't ignore because every fund, again, every fund is unique and different. So you can't write it off as just one or the other. Thank you. That's great. All right. We're going we're gonna to turn up our speed a little bit to yeah. answer these a little more concisely, just to make sure we get everybody's question answered. All right. It's not like any guys are dragging it out. Like there's a lot of content here. So mm. next question is on the tailoring investments for clients category. All right. So why should financial advisors advocate for allocating a specific percentage of a high net worth client's portfolio to hedge funds, given their potential to mitigate risk and generate alpha in volatile markets? So I would just kind of, in terms of answering that, I mean, hedge fund strategies, particularly for high net worth clients, it operates kind of in the same way as how you would work other structured products. I think that just given the, again, and this is where you kind of have to talk to your clients about their risk tolerance, their risk profile. My understanding of this question is just like, are they good for the market or are they good for like good strategies for like high net worth individuals? Again, like in terms of alpha generation, they tend to be pretty solid. Um, fee wise or fee structure wise, like I would still kind of think about like, all right, how, like what percentage do you want to actually allocate to a hedge fund? I would say like, again, with any sort of strategy, like this really depends on your investment, but I wouldn't make it like a core part of like your, I wouldn't make it a core part of the portfolio, but again, it's definitely good for just risk mitigation overall in the markets and then like helping to generate additional alpha. In what ways can financial advisors tailor alternative investment strategies to align with the income generation goals of retired clients with a moderate risk tolerance? Moderate risk tolerance, again, given nothing else, the first thing that comes to mind would be real estate funds. They're very good at just generating additional like capital over time, essentially as the real estate fund basically gathers money from rentals or from property ownership. They can basically distribute that out to the investors. And so it's pretty good. It's a pretty good strategy in terms of just being able to have a constant stream of income. It's very hard for those funds to, I would say, go under, or you. I would find that very rarely do people stop paying their rent unless there is a severe crisis on hand. And there's always, for example, opportunity for people to move into new real estate places. So I would say that that is like a particular opportunity that addresses that criteria, but there are others, of course. Right. Next question is, how can financial advisors tactically implement private equity and real estate investments to enhance diversification within a client's portfolio? So the way that I would think about this, and again, like PE is a broad swath. So if you're trying to think about enhanced diversification, I, I like to think of private equity as in like 
more late stage companies. So thinking about like basically series D and above and venture capital being more early stage. So if you want stage diversification or um, vintage diversification, investing in earlier vintages and then perhaps late stage vintage like private equity funds is a good way to provide diversification. And the same with, I would say, for like real estate funds as well. So they essentially like similarly large vintages over time, investing in um, perhaps like smaller real estate, smaller real estate funds, or even going into opportunity zone funds. You could even think about, for example, doing international investments. There's a lot of sort of different ways that you can tackle this and approach this, but again, keeping that risk profile and liquidity profile in mind. How do you evaluate the solidarity of an alternative fund? Without going into the details of our strategy, the first thing that I do is we have a due diligence um, questionnaire that we provide to all of our managers to fill out. We also work with them first to answer the questions within this operational due diligence questionnaire. We also go into investment strategy. And essentially the next stage, I would call it the interrogation phase, just kind of going in and just really making certain that all of the, like these answers are satisfactory and get to the crux of what we want to understand about the funds. And so we understand it inside and out. And then the final piece for us is that we write a due diligence report, which is available for all of our financial advisors, as well as the DDQ as well. And so you can see from top to bottom, every level of due diligence that we performed conducted on these funds in the same way that a CIO or anyone who is evaluating an alternative would go through. In essence, like when it comes to like how we are looking or what are sort of the red flags that we look for, our concern is basically about the viability of the fund over time. And then the other things that are, or other kind of like red flags that I look for is like if a fund manager is unable to identify how they differentiate themselves from others, if they're not really certain about like operational, if they have operational issues, if they don't really understand like where, like how cash flows work. Those are kind of the things that I keep in mind when I'm doing operational due diligence and evaluating funds. That's great. Let's talk about one more last type of fund. Let's talk about warnings that are red flags maybe around private equity or opportunity zones due to changing or potentially changing interest rates. So when we're talking about private equity or opportunity zone investing, the way that these funds essentially make their money is through a lot of the time large institutions or like large family offices. Within the past like five to 10 years of VC, VCs and PE funds, have had, I would say, a very easy time being able to get money because interest rates were so low. So with borrowing being at an all-time low, funds were essentially able to rake in a lot of capital from private institutions and universities because the cost of capital was so cheap. As interest rates have started to go up, what we're seeing now is a lot of VC, PE, Opportunity Zone funds kind of starting to show a shrinkage in their fund size because these investors who were very actively involved and who essentially were willing to write checks very easily are no longer willing to do so, not only because cost of capital is high, but also because a lot of these funds, um, for example, have not been able to turn out distribution. So they haven't been able to see a significant return on their investment. But what they've been doing is essentially paying into that large, man that 2% management fee. So we're seeing institutions essentially pull back from some of these private equity or opportunity zone opportunities because they want to see more distributions doled out before they consider it continued commitment. 
All right. Let's talk about Mammoth's technology, the integrated alternatives platform. What does that mean? So Steve, what's Mammoth's business model first? And then how can advisors add funds to their platform with our own OCIO due diligence? So how does that, how does that work today? So I'm guessing our own is the advisory firms, right. OCIO due diligence platform. So Ultimately, the way Mammoth approaches this is first and foremost as a chassis for you to kind of build your alternatives catalog on. Um, We do have member partners and we work specifically with funds to digitize their subscription documents and help them onboard investors more easily. All of those funds that we work with are available to you on the platform. We have partnership like with Bonrian where we work with funds together and those are available on our platform for onboarding. But on the advisory side, you have a catalog that's totally bespoke to you. And I think that that's important that you can bring funds that you work with from across platforms that you have access to all into one place. Our business model specifically is based on technology. So we start with a platform fee for access. We have services built on top of that to help you managing the data that's associated with those funds or custom integrations and workflows. And then it's on a volume basis. So not based on flows, not based on the size of investments made, but really based on the number of accounts and the number of um, positions that we're helping maintain for you. Um, So in the simplest form, we really wanted to approach this where we can bring operational value to a team, either helping to reduce headcount or make your team more efficient with managing alts, um, rather than coming at it from a perspective where we're going to help allocate capital into funds and getting paid on both sides there. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that people are starting to choose Mammoth for more and more is really to help with the verification or checking of all the values that are going into your reporting softwares, just to give you confidence in what you're doing, uh, what you're reporting. Because often, we found, my experience is like the most neglected clients are often your largest. Mm. And it's completely you know, antithetical to what reality should be. Not that you know you should have differences in how people are treated, but simply they're a large, larger impact to your business. Um, and giving them better transparency and focus through your reporting technology should should take a, a pretty high priority. Um, how does your platform integrate with other platforms and advisors already using? Yeah. So we have great relationships um, with you know your portfolio accounting system, which I feel has really emerged as kind of the the nucleus of that most advisors build their business around. And while that's important, and I think to just echo what Judd, what you just mentioned around the checker services, a lot of the advisors will even just rely on the feeds from the custodian. So a Schwab or a Fidelity putting the values and the updates on these alts positions back into their portfolio accounting system, whether that's Orion or Tamarack or Adipar or Black Diamond, and many more can be named. But you know, even those, the custodians report these positions as if it's a publicly traded position. And there's so many nuanced details on the statements of these alternative positions that don't get reported through that custodian. And I actually just talked to an investor a couple of weeks ago and he's like, yeah, I just did a few private deals for the first time in the last year. And now when I get my performance report, these four positions look like there's a placeholder there. And he's like, it doesn't look anything like the other investments I have. It just looks like it's placeholder that somebody put on my on my performance report. And that's because it's there's not a lot of information that's coming from the custodian. Mm-hmm. So we need to do the work to come in and make these positions feel like they're being reported correctly. And that's where our checker service comes in, is actually making sure that the statement's reflected inside the client's portal and their performance reports. Steve, can people white label your platform? 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> On both sides. Both sides. Yes. <laughs> yes. Does your platform include fund listings through either platforms to include fund listings and descriptions, subscription process, and fund reporting? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> yep. Very good. Excellent. All right. Honestly, guys, thanks for hanging out uh, with us this afternoon. Is the platform just for advisors or for LPs as well? Good question. So our platform does come with an investor portal. Um, so for the, some of the fund managers we work with um, that maybe haven't had that in the past, we do offer a portal. Um, this also comes in helpful for advisors that might not have their alternatives feeding into their client portal already. So the, the Mammoth Investor Portal allows you to have a document vault and a place where you can aggregate all those, all the private positions your client owns where they can come access it all in one spot. Oh, no, I was just going to say on the Banrian side, while our focus is fo is on financial advisors, we do provide similar services that could be used for like an institutional LP. So I think that, again, like while we're not necessarily marketed for LPs, I think that it's still a viable product to use in that case as well. That's great. So that concludes our questions. And thank you so much for hanging out and spending your uh, hour with us here today. We will send a video to you so you can watch it, share it with your friends, turn off Netflix, turn on this uh, <laughs> webinar, relive it again. Um, but honestly, appreciate everyone's time. If you would like to talk to Steve or Victoria or myself, uh, here are some email addresses to reach us. Thank you so much for your time. And, and Victoria and Steve, thank you so much for spending time with us and going through these questions. Thanks so much for awesome. having me. Thanks for having us. Take care. Everything discussed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered advice. The participants may have financial interests in the companies discussed on the podcast.